The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 5:22-23. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the, the God who holds your life breath in his hand who can, and who controls the whole course of your life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So tomorrow is October 31st. It's Halloween. So if you didn't buy candy yet, buy some candy, sit out in front of your yard, meet your neighbors. Good opportunity to get to know people. See, one day of the year where people can come to your door and people get angry about it. So be out there. Now, for some people, this is less a day about getting candy and meeting neighbors and more a day about scary things. Right? Is that you? Do, you? do you like scary things? Are you, are you a haunted house, horror movie type of person? I'm not. I, I've never really found the joy in that. It never made sense to me why you would watch a movie or do whatever that would cause you to jump in fright and then have trouble sleeping for a week. Sleep, like sleeping's hard enough. Like, let's not make it any harder. But it's interesting to me how we all, we all find different things scary. I know some people are afraid of public speaking. Thankfully, I'm not. Otherwise, it would be a hard job to do. What I am afraid of, though, is snakes, which is biblical. So, (laughs) some people love heights. Others are paralyzed by just the thought of them. So, what are some things you find scary? Like, what what are the things that terrify you? Probably, if you you thought about them, you'd say some of them are irrational, but some of them actually are legitimate. As parents, those of us who are parents, we teach our kids to fear certain things, right? Fear a hot stove. Fear, fear a busy street, fear the lurking stranger, right? Fear isn't always bad. Sometimes, in fact, fear is a warning sign that danger is ahead. There's a healthy fear that we should all have that I think we often ignore. So we're told this in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil, and this in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for people to die once. And after this, judgment. The judgment of God is a terrifying reality that each man, woman, and child will face. Everything you've done, everything you've said, everything you've thought about will be brought out into the light of God's courtroom where he sits as judge. One writer warns us, God says to every person, beware. Beware because there is no human wall so high, no human fortress so secure, no activity so hidden that it can protect sin from the judgment of God. This chapter we're studying this morning in the book of Daniel warns us about the judgment of God on sin, specifically the sin of pride. If if you were here last week, you understand that this is the second chapter in a row that warn us about the seriousness of pride. Pride is not a puppy to be played with, but a cobra to be killed. Are you taking pride seriously? Two chapters in a row, two sermons in a row, God wants us 
to think about this. He wants us to hear this and evaluate this. Do you understand that God will judge those who in arrogance ignore what he has said? This chapter, chapter 5, opens with a surprise because the first words are King Belshazzar. So if you, you've been with us so far in our study of Daniel, right, that, and if you were reading Daniel even, that would come as a surprise because you would say, whoa, wait a second, where's King Nebuchadnezzar? Right, so for four chapters, sort of the somewhat the dominant figure, at least the dominant in power and authority and what seems to be might is King Nebuchadnezzar. What happened to him? And the answer is he's dead. He's off the scene. No eulogy, no monument, no obituary, just dust. Like here yesterday, gone today. Even more surprising is that Belshazzar is not the king that follows Nebuchadnezzar. There, there were a number of kings and conspiracies that sort of fought for control of Babylon for over two decades before we get to this point. Even this, Belshazzar isn't actually the king. He's, he sort of called the king. His, his dad is the king, but he's a little crazy and he's off somewhere. And so, so Belshazzar here is just ruling as sort of de facto king when these events take place. So chapter 5 begins with this new king. Someone we're not familiar with, someone we haven't heard about up to this point, and he's throwing a huge party. Look at verse 1. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Now, we, we're not told what prompts this feast. Some historians suggest that it was an annual feast to, to celebrate the gods of Babylon. So this was just the time for that feast, and so they're having the feast. Here's what we do know is that while they're having this feast in the palace of the heart of Babylon, there is an enemy army that is outside the walls of the city. These are mighty walls, walls that can never be taken. And so the enemy's camped out there. What are they going to do? Yet by the end of this night, that enemy will have invaded and conquered Babylon. Could this feast have been a, a religious festival actually asking their gods for victory. Possibly. But we're not really told why this feast is happening, but here's what is clear in the feast is that Belshazzar is reveling in the power and might of Babylon, and the way he's doing it is he is reliving the time that Babylon conquered Jerusalem nearly 60 years earlier. Look at verse 2. Under the influence of the wine... Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple. So these are spiritual objects, significant religious objects in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Make no mistake, Belshazzar is making a spiritual statement. He is saying by his actions that my gods, the gods of Babylon, are responsible for the victory we had those decades before over Israel, and those same gods will certainly grant us victory over this army that's outside the walls. And in his confidence, he mocks the true God, the God that we know from reading this, remember chapter 1, verse 2, gave Nebuchadnezzar, or gave Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. 
He mocks that true God as part of a drunken, erotic, pagan worship service. What comes to mind in reading these verses is Galatians 6-7, which says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Belshazzar is mocking God in front of the entire leadership structure of Babylon, and he is about to reap what he has sowed. And the reaping begins in a terrifying way in verse 5. At that moment, we're told, the fingers of a man's hand appear and begin writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand where all can see it. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Now, fingers writing on a wall would have actually brought would have, would have reminded the, the Jewish leaders, brought something to their memory of, of something that happened earlier in their history. So the, the wise men of Pharaoh, there was an earlier time in Israel's history when they were enslaved by a different country, not Babylon, but Egypt. And they, they were in captivity there and, and God started to come in judgment and he was coming in judgment on Egypt through these 10 plagues. And, and while these plagues are happening, Pharaoh gathers his wise men, his counselors around him, similar to what we see the kings of Babylon do. And, and he's talking with them, he's discussing with them, why are these bad things happening to Egypt? What's responsible? And his own counselors tell him the plagues are the finger of God. So God has, God's fingers have written judgment in the past, and now they're writing judgment here again. The description of Belshazzar's fear is almost funny. Right? It says his face turns white, his bowels loosen, and his knees start clacking together like a drum set. You know, the writer of Daniel is showing us the weakness of mighty kings. He, he did this regularly with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Mighty Nebuchadnezzar? Successful, powerful. No one can stand up Nebuchadnezzar. He kills who he wants. You know what he couldn't do? He couldn't go to sleep. He had scary dreams. Right? And, and so he's showing us these, these kings that look so mighty and powerful, they're, they're just weak men. This reminds me of a scene in the great movie Hoosiers. So the basketball coach of the small town team, he's, he's led his, his team unexpectedly to the champion, high school championship game in, in the state of Indiana. And so they go up the day of the game and they go into the arena, mammoth arena, where they're going to play sort of the, the powerful, overwhelming team from the inner city that, that everyone thinks is going to destroy them. And he, he takes them in, and you can just see the faces of his team look around. They've never seen a place so large, so impressive, so intimidating. And so the coach actually has one of the smaller players on his team get on the shoulders of one of the taller players, and he hands him a tape measure. And he says, I want you to hold that tape measure up at the rim. Puts it all down. He's like, how tall is it? You say, 10 feet. And the coach says, that is the same height as the rim is from the floor back in our small gym in Hickory. There's, impressive as it might be, there's really no difference. It's just a basketball court. And that's what the writer's saying here. You know, Belshazzar looks pretty impressive, doesn't he? 
for all of his gold and his jewels and his armies and his thousand nobles all partying together. He is no different. He's just a little man, a weak man with shaky knees and an upset tummy. But what does Belshazzar do? He does exactly what Nebuchadnezzar always did. He, he screams for his counselors and his wise men and his magicians and everyone to come and help him. And he says in verse 7, like, I will give you everything. I'll give you power and prestige and riches if you'll simply tell me, what does that handwriting say? What's the message? And shockingly to us as reading, they can't figure it out. They're helpless. And so his fear increases If only there was someone in his kingdom who could interpret mysterious messages. Well, the queen mother, who hadn't been invited to the party, she hears the ruckus, she comes and investigates, and she says to Belshazzar, hey, there is someone who can help. There is someone in your kingdom who seems to uniquely understand the message of God. He helped in the past. He can surely help you now. Verses 10 through 12, she describes Daniel. And in verse 13, Daniel enters. And it it actually feels pretty dramatic. One person told me this week, it feels like that moment when Han Solo appears on the screen in The Force Awakens, 30 years after the last appearance he made. And the Jewish readers, like the people in the theater, probably cheered, like Daniel's back on the scene. Well, King's not quite so impressed with Daniel. He speaks to him with sort of a combination of arrogance and nervousness in verses 14 and 15. He desperately needs help. In fact, he's so desperate for help, he'll even ask this old Judean exile for help. I love the comment one author made. He said, the only help for Belshazzar was a cast-off Jew whose God he despised. You know, that's the only hope any of us have for rescue. A cast-off Jew whose God we have rebelled against. Our only hope for salvation is Jesus, a Judean exile who intercedes for us. Well, in verse 16, Belshazzar promises Daniel riches and promotion. If you can just, if you can just tell me what that, what's on that wall. In verse 17, Daniel's like, you can keep your stuff. I don't want it, but I will tell you. Now, he, he knows this, right? He knows the king is going to lose everything that night. And so what good do riches and power and promotion do when the city is conquered? And it sort of seems easy to us. If I knew it was going to be gone tomorrow, I, then, then I wouldn't care about riches and promotion. It's going to be gone tomorrow. Right? Riches and promotion never last I mean, maybe they'll last for more than one night. But if we could see them as accurately as Daniel sees them, I think we would find it far easier to resist the temptation to compromise in order to gain wealth or position. Well, before Daniel gives the king the interpretation, what he does is he gives him a history lesson. Look at verse 18. He says, Your Majesty, the Most High God gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted, and he kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted, and he humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. 
Verse 22. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, as, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and the writing was inscribed. Now, two things stand out from this mini-sermon of Daniel's. The first is that information is no substitute for transformation. Information is no substitute for transformation. We're told, verse 22, Belshazzar knows the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his humbling, but knowing is not enough. The knowledge hasn't transformed him. I mean, one of the great lies of our culture is that everything can be solved through education and information. So do only uneducated people do selfish, sinful things. In fact, my guess is throughout human history, the people who have done the most damage were highly educated. See, parents, our, our kids need more than facts. Here's the, what they need. They need a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. And so this is what we need to work and pray for, is that God would do this in them, not just fill their head with knowledge, but transform their heart through an encounter with Jesus. Second, and this one's especially for children and teenagers, God gave you parents to protect you from stupid, sinful choices. Throughout the Bible, but especially in the book of Proverbs, you're told to listen to your parents. And here's why. Your parents may not have admitted this. I'm going to admit it on their behalf. They made some poor decisions. They suffered the consequence of those decisions, and they would love to keep you from having to suffer the consequences of those decisions. They have earned wisdom, often painfully, and they will give it to you free if you'll simply take it. I mean, have you noticed this? As we've gone through the book of Daniel, the same thing keeps happening over and over and over. Like you get to this, you're like, wait, I read this already. Well, you did, sort of. It's just happening again. Why is that? Because in their arrogance, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't learn from what happened before. In his arrogance, Belshazzar doesn't learn from what happened before. Well, in verse 25, we finally find out what's written on the wall. It's four words, meanie, meanie, tekel, and parson. There's, there's a lot of debate about these words, how to say them, what they mean. Little Nora Eason heard her dad Tyler say the words at community group a couple weeks ago. The following day, she asked him if he would tell her about the tickle farts ban. And that's one possible interpretation. This is confusing because of how things were written in ancient Semitic languages. For instance, Hebrew has no vowels, no punctuation, and no spaces. So it's literally just a string of consonants. Think of it sort of like a vanity license plate. You ever pull it behind? And it's basically a bunch of, it's a bunch of consonants, no vowels usually, sometimes a random number that might mean something, no spaces, and you're back there and you're like, what, what, what? And you're, you're trying to figure out first, right, what are the words? Then sometimes you figure out the words, you're like, oh, it's this. Then you're like, well, what does that mean? Right? It's, it's sort of a riddle. That person may, who got it, may know what it means, but you're not sure what it means. Well, that's, that's sort of what happens here. Even if you figure out the words, what, what do those words mean? What's the riddle? Well, verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message, meaning 
means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez, or Parson, means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel tells Belshazzar that God has placed his kingdom on the scales of justice, and they are not balanced. That his days have been numbered, his kingdom weighed, and it will be divided and given to another nation. In verse 30 and 31, that's how the chapter ends. It ends with mighty Belshazzar killed later in the evening at the hands of this invading Medo-Persian army. Now that we looked at the story, here's what I want to do. I want to sort of relook at it somewhat briefly through three filters. Okay, and I think each, each filter gives us some lessons to learn from it. Here's the first filter. It's individual. Sort of looking at the individuals in the story. And here's what we learn. God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. So this chapter begins with a party. Right? A thousand nobles all the food and drink and everything they could ever want. And this party is taking place on death's door. These partiers are going to be dead before the night is over. And what causes their death? Well, in one sense, we'd say their death is caused by an invading army. But these two chapters show us that there is something more going on. Their death is a result of their arrogance. That they thought they could flaunt God and get away with it, but they couldn't. That judgment is swift and sure for the arrogant. Now listen, we need to interpret these chapters 4 and 5 together because chapter 4 warns us about pride, but then it shows us, hey, hey, there is mercy for those who repent and humble themselves. Then chapter 5 says, but don't presume upon that mercy. Don't say, well, I'll, I'll have another chance. Don't give yourself the false assurance that you can just do it later. Chapter 5 shows us, yes, there's mercy, but the, the, sa- the grains of sand are trickling down and you don't know what day or night they will run out. And so repent now. Humble yourself now. Don't assume you will have another chance in the future. Belshazzar's reaction to the handwriting on the wall is recorded in almost humorous fashion, right? The king, the mighty king, needs a diaper. But before we laugh at his response, we should recognize that this is the one thing he gets correct in this entire account. That the appropriate response to the impending judgment of God is bowel-loosening terror. Earlier I read a verse from Hebrews which warned us that death comes, then comes judgment. And how should we think about that judgment? Well, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friend, have you seriously considered your standing before the living God, the judge of heaven and hell? There are two common phrases that we still use today that come from this chapter. And both of them are warnings about something bad coming. The first one is, your days are numbered. Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard it? If you're a parent, you probably said it. Your days are numbered. The second one is this, the writing is on the wall. These are warnings for you that if you don't humbly repent of your sin and beg God for mercy, that your days are numbered, that the writing's on the wall. And so it's an... It's a warning that's also an invitation to repent and be saved. 
all in contrast to the pride of Belshazzar. We see the humility of Daniel. So this book opens with Daniel, a young man. He's a slave. He's, he's serving the king who enslaved him. And now for at least the third time, Daniel is promoted and given this position of great prominence. And the chapter ends with Daniel outliving another king. So mighty Nebuchadnezzar, he's dead. Mighty Belshazzar, he's dead. And there's Daniel. Servant of God, humble, lowly. He's still there, still alive. And Daniel remains faithful in the place that God has called him to serve. See, even when everyone seems to forget him, he obeys God and God remembers him. And not just God. Daniel's faithful witness is remembered 25 years later by the queen mother. Brothers and sisters, serve God humbly right where you are. You never know what fruit God might bring decades later. At the time of this account, Daniel is likely in his 80s. You can never outlive your usefulness to God. As long as you draw breath, God has you on this earth for a reason. So let me just speak for a moment to our seniors. Our church needs you. We need your wisdom and your faithfulness. We need your example and your perspective. We need you to speak the truth with a boldness and clarity that only comes from walking with Jesus for decades. What's very common in our culture is is shuffling older people off somewhere where they're not seen or heard from. Listen, we, we will not do that here because we will be fools to not embrace the wisdom and joy that comes from your active ministry at Redeemer. We need you. Now, you may think you have little to offer, right, as... One of the things that comes with getting older is regret. And so you maybe look back at your life and you just see all the mistakes you made. And I just want to say you still have a vital part in this body. And maybe here's the ministry you need. Maybe it's the ministry of mistakes. Where you say, hey, I can't tell you what to do. I can tell you some things you shouldn't do. And maybe I can spare you from some regret. Listen, don't hide Don't voluntarily retire from serving God and serving your younger brothers and sisters. Be active. The closer you get to the finish line, the harder you run. Listen, we we need you. So the first filter is the individual that God humbles. The proud king, he exalts the humble servant. Here's the second filter. It's national. So we sort of zoom out a little bit. And here's what we see. God brings down nations and preserves his people. So as, as they gather in this party, the elite of Babylon are counting on their gods to save them. Because at this moment, they have unrivaled security and comfort. And they say, well, our gods did that. They, they, have, they, they have just ease and prosperity. And they're like, oh, we attribute this to our gods. And they're confident in this moment, nothing can take it away. I was speaking with Steve Gadd this week who grew up in India and he was telling me how how this reminds him of his time back home because in Hinduism is a religion of many gods made of wood and stone and we we started talking about how this is true here our idols look different but they share the same core here people worship things like body image like, like 
how much is sacrificed, how much money, how much health, how much energy, how many relationships are sacrificed to achieve a look that will bring acceptance or is perceived to bring acceptance. People worship success. And the temples there are temples that look like boardrooms. The harvest is a good salary and benefits. People worship all kinds of things. And, and what the, their hope is is that this is what provides them a life of comfort and ease of security. And in which each one of these sort of false idols, there are philosophies and philosophers that they look to as the ones who can guide them in this. And this is what happens, that when life gets hard and the judgment of God comes and unexpected things happen, guess how helpful those philosophies and philosophers are? They're worthless because the gods they serve are empty and hollow. But as God's people, sometimes we look at those who are worshiping idols those who are living for everything other than God, those who are believing false and empty philosophies, and we're like, we know, we know those gods can't save, but they seem to have all of the power and influence. And so we see in their rebellion against God what appears to be success. And, and worse sometimes is the people of God are being persecuted. So Evil seems to be winning. Righteousness seems to be losing. The people of God are suffering. Those who rebel against God are getting ahead. I mean, and this is certainly how it looks to Israel at this moment. Babylon, home of pagan gods and philosophies, ruled by an arrogant king who mocks God. They're successful. Look at mighty Babylon. And Israel's barely alive. Listen, the account of Babylon's quick rise to prominence and even quicker fall to destruction reminds us that we don't need to fear evil kingdoms or put our hope in good ones. That each nation, each kingdom has a timer already set, a fuse already lit. Just in my lifetime, there's a couple distinct memories I have. I remember the indestructible wall in Berlin which a few months later you could buy pieces of. You could order them, not online, it was before then. You could order them. They'd send you a piece of that indestructible wall to put on your mantle. Or, or I remember the statue of Saddam Hussein terrorized in this very similar geographical region, terrorized the church of God. I remember that statue being toppled over before they found him hiding in a rat hole. But what we need to understand that Israel was in the place they were because of their rebellion and unbelief. You see, what, what Belshazzar and Babylon are, in the, are doing in the palace is really no different than what Aaron and Israel did at the foot of Mount Sinai. In fact, the very same fingers that wrote the Ten Commandments to warn Israel about their rebellion wrote this warning on Babylon's wall. And so God doesn't just humble kings. He brings down nations. But here's, here's what we need to see. As nations fall, God preserves his people. Did he forget about Israel? Well, aren't we reading about Daniel and his three friends that are being preserved in the midst of the heart of the enemy territory? Isn't God working to restore what is broken? Even these stories are written. They're not written for Belshazzar's sake. 
They're written for the sake of the people of God. That's why we see God described in here as majestic and most high, ruler over all human kingdoms, Lord of the heavens. Why? So God's people in moments of exile under the dominion of an evil king would say, I can still trust him. I can still trust him. Brothers and sisters, here's what the book of Daniel is attempting to create in us. It's helping us develop eyes to see what is actually going on in the world. Babylon, which appears to be on top, is worshiping gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 4. Inanimate objects. And in the very next verse, verse 5, God's fingers right on the wall. And later, Belshazzar is told that God holds in his hands your very breath. I mean, God preserves his people because he doesn't have hands of stone or fingers of silver. Right? God's mighty arm is strong enough and long enough to rescue his people. This chapter ends with God giving the kingdom to Darius. He's also called Cyrus. And so, from our statue of chapter 2, we understand the head of gold is gone and we've moved on to the chest of silver. But, but I want you to hear what, about a decree that Darius makes and how, how absolutely unlikely this seems just a, a, few, a few short hours earlier. Here's what the decree he makes. The Lord... The God of the heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed to me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. So the, the king who brought the invading army in to take down Belshazzar is the one who sends Israel home and helps them rebuild the temple. I mean, no one would have anticipated this. Like, this is only what possible when God does it. So when we think about nations, brothers and sisters, I, I really want to encourage you to use this filter. Don't fret when government is bad and don't trust when government is good. Don't get too dejected over a bad leader and don't get too elated over a good one. Only one kingdom lasts, all others crumble. Here's the third and final filter, stepping back and looking sort of universal. Here's what we see, God judges sin and he saves from judgment. So in many ways, the big, story, big themes of this story are the themes that run throughout Scripture, that God judges sin. Since the first sin in the Garden of Eden, every human being has been born a sinner, and God, because he's just, can't overlook or... Or, or pretend that that sin didn't happen. And so God judges sin. He judges your sin. He judges my sin. And listen, those of us who are in church a lot, who grew up in church, this is one of those things that it's easy for us to nod along and not actually think about. It's like if the check engine light in your car is on long enough, you don't pay attention to it. When that scuff was made on your wall the first week or two, you saw it. Now you don't even remember until I just said it. Now you're thinking of that scuff on your wall. This is what happens with warnings of judgment is we grow accustomed to them. 
And they're repeated over and over in Scripture for this reason. God is grabbing you this morning and saying, you must repent of your sin before it's too late. Even though Babylon has fallen, it still lives on. Babylon, the city of Nebuchadnezzar, is gone, but Babylon, the symbol of human pride and rebellion, lives on all around us. Have you ever heard this, that at least in England, I think it's in more places, when a king dies, everyone shouts, the king is dead, long live the king. Right? Because this king has died, but the king, the kingship continues. The king is dead, long live the king. And in this passage, what we see is Babylon is dead. And Babylon continues. Keeps returning in new and different forms. Everything we see in this passage happens every day in every city around the world. And it's not until King Jesus returns that the final fall of Babylon comes. And it's then and only then that Babylon is no more. And so we live, brothers and sisters, in Babylon because Babylon lives on. But just as Daniel is saved from judgment, we can be saved from judgment as well. And this, this chapter is just a beautiful picture of how Jesus rescues his people from sin So that night, long ago, when Belshazzar makes the decision to bring those objects from the temple into this palace to be part of this, this pagan celebration, he is mocking God. But do you realize it was God who chose disgrace? God was the one who gave those vessels, those vessels which represented him to his people. Those vessels which were closely aligned to his holiness, his salvation and his work in the past, his promise of a coming Messiah, those vessels which symbolized all that, God gave them to Nebuchadnezzar to one day be used in a mocking form by Belshazzar. In other words, God chose to suffer disgrace so he could enter captivity with his people and save them from exile and bring them home. It's only our God. Study all the religions of the world. It's only our God who chooses to suffer disgrace to save people who rebel against him. The handwriting on the wall. What it was really listing there was the judgment of God on Belshazzar's sin. Right, And because God is just, once he wrote that judgment down, he enacted that judgment We're told this in the book of Colossians that when Jesus died, that there was a handwritten judgment against each one of us. That there was a a handwritten decree which said, God must judge that sinner, Josh, for his sin. And because God is just, he had to fulfill it. But it says when Jesus died on the cross, the handwriting was fulfilled. The debt was removed. That Jesus stepped into my place and the handwritten decree of judgment he took upon himself. And that's what we're seeing pictured here. Meany, meany, tekel, parson, numbered, weighed, and divided. That Jesus took his place on the scales of justice. He was numbered in our place. The weight of our sin was placed upon him. Our punishment divided him from the Father. But unlike Belshazzar, a A new king didn't take his place. Jesus rose from the dead and his kingdom is no longer numbered. The sins of his people are no longer weighed on the scale and he has united us with his Father never to be divided again. You see, the final word about Belshazzar 
final word about this king who in his arrogant rebellion would not humble himself and repent of his pride. The final word about Belshazzar is judgment. He was crushed by the justice of God. But isn't it good news that the final word for the people of God no matter the circumstances, no matter our faults and our failures, because Jesus was crushed for us. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our God judges sin, and he himself saves us from his judgment. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray for two things. One, I pray that the weight of sin and judgment will fall upon anyone who has not repented of their sin. I know how easy it can be sometimes just to brush off the tickling of the conscience. But Lord, I pray that that cannot happen today. If there's anyone sitting in this room, and I'm certain there are, who has not humbly repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, I pray that today the weight of their sin and the reality of judgment would shake them as it should Belshazzar. But Lord, I pray that they will respond differently. They will not respond with continued arrogance, but will humble themselves before your mighty hand. And they will see that Jesus suffered disgrace so that we could be exalted. That Jesus stood on the scales of judgment, and though they would have tipped in his favor because he was perfect and innocent, he took our sins upon himself and then the judgment that was deserved because of our sin. And so, Father, I pray that those here who have never received grace and mercy and forgiveness through Jesus, today would be the day where they would experience his rescue and his deliverance and his pardon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.